Welcome to Herrick Does That, a podcast on current legal topics, relevant industry and legal trends, and significant developments in the law, brought to you by the attorneys of Herrick Feinstein. I'm Erwin Kishner, Herrick's executive chairman, and I want to thank you for joining us. Hi, everyone. My name is Shivani Podar, and I'm a litigation partner at Herrick Feinstein. Thank you so much for joining us today for a discussion about a hot topic on everyone's mind, special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs for short. My practice focuses on complex litigation arising from financial transactions. I often represent investors, both individuals and institutions, in litigation that arises from their financial investments, for example, in hedge funds, private equity funds, cryptocurrency or blockchain focused companies, among others. I'm also often on the other side of the table, representing investment advisors or hedge funds in finance related litigation as well. A number of my clients have been investing in SPACs lately, which prompted me to understand what the litigation risks might be surrounding SPACs. I have the pleasure of being joined by two very knowledgeable guests today, Anthony Giordano, and David Garrigus from Hub International. Anthony will be serving as a moderator today while David and I will discuss SPACs. David, why don't you introduce yourself and then Anthony, you can take it away with an intro and some questions for us. Thanks, Giovanni. My name is David Garrigus. I uh, lead a specialty practice within Hub focused on management and professional liability. Uh, but within our practice, I focus on complex transactions. Uh, and so that could be traditional IPOs, SPAC IPOs, DSPAC transactions, uh, though these days it seems like I'm spending a, a great majority of my time focused on SPACs and DSPACs. Great. And Anthony? Sure. My name is Anthony Giordano. I'm currently a senior vice president with Hub International located in the New York City office. I've been in the insurance business for 20 years, 13 of which has been spent on the brokerage side, always with a concentration on executive liability. My main function at Hub is really to serve as business development with a focus on private equity uh, and hedge funds. So I guess we can get started and, and jump right into some questions. Shivani, let's start with the basics. What are SPACs? So a SPAC essentially is a blank check shell corporation. It has no operations. It's created solely for raising capital through an IPO and mainly for the purpose of acquiring or merging with a private company, which is called a target company. The capital raised is generally held in a trust until the SPAC management, which is called a sponsor, identifies a target company. And in the event a target is not identified, generally within an 18 to 24 month window, the SPAC is liquidated and investors are refunded their capital. Great. So Shivani, so tell me, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of SPACs? Sure. So SPACs have several advantages. You know, they can be more efficient than traditional IPOs. They can cost less money and time. They can also offer investors an opportunity to invest at the ground level but also provide the flexibility to opt out of the merger or acquisition by redeeming their shares or voting against the transaction when the target is about to be acquired. Um, some disadvantages um, is it can often take years for a SPAC to announce the target. If the target is not identified, obviously, within the set window, the SPAC is liquidated. 
Um, and because SPACs are shell companies without really a track record, investors are generally forced to rely on the sponsor's reputation and experience in this respect. And the investment can be a bit risky because investors don't know the identity of the target at the outset of their investment. So with that, what trends are you seeing in SPAC-related litigation? You know, what's interesting is while we've seen an explosion in SPAC transactions, we haven't yet seen a similar explosion in SPAC-related litigation. Uh, But it's definitely coming. Um, And the handful of decisions that we have seen that have been issued in SPAC-related litigation do give us some insight into certain trends. I'll highlight four trends that I've seen. Uh, The first trend I've seen is litigation related to inadequate disclosures. So although SPACs have fewer disclosure requirements, adequate disclosures are really key to avoid litigation. In the last five years, for example, a majority of the litigation has resulted from inadequate disclosures related to conflicts, compensation, related party transactions, or the payment of fees, amongst others. So that what that's telling us is it's really important for SPACs to ensure that they're adequately disclosing sufficient information about the financial transaction. Another trend we've seen is that you know shareholders' rights really have to be spelled out and disclosed uh, robustly in the certificate of incorporation. So in SPAC transactions, shareholders have the right more rights than a traditional IPO. Shareholders can vote against the merger. They can convert their shares into cash. And courts have made clear that the SPAC certificate of incorporation must specifically set forth all shareholder rights and requirements for exercising those rights. So that way, investors know exactly what their rights are and how to exercise them. Another trend we've seen is that directors and officers must be fully aware of the contents of the documents that they're signing on behalf of the SPAC. So misstatements and omissions included in documents that are disseminated to investors or filed with the SEC may be attributed to directors and officers who sign these documents. So this is particularly the case with SPACs, where the company has virtually no operations and only a few employees. It's very important that directors and officers diligently review any documents to avoid liability. And I know, David, you'll get into that in a moment about directors and officers. Um, the, uh, the fourth trend I've seen is related party transactions will likely be scrutinized by a court. So because SPACs are shell companies without really a track record, shareholders really must rely on the sponsor's reputation, experience, and expertise in order to invest in the company. And often sponsors may tap their network to identify and acquire target companies. So appearances of conflicts of interest or self-interest may arise, leading to litigation. And sponsors may want to avoid that by providing additional disclosures to investors. So as an example, um, sponsors may acquire additional financial incentives when a merger or acquisition is consummated which may result in an appearance of conflict of interest. So the best way to mitigate this risk is provide sufficient disclosures at the outset of any potential conflicts of interest, any appearances of conflicts of interest, and ensure that any related party transactions can withstand investor or court scrutiny. Terrific. Thank you. Dave, 
there's been a lot of press on the hard DNO market for SPACs. What's the current state of the market and what is driving the market? It's a great question, Tony, and it's it's one that we get quite frequently because indeed uh, DNO has become one of the larger expense items for uh, for SPAC sponsors, uh, given the escalation in pricing and changes in terms. But I, I think as important as uh, understanding that the market is hard is really why it's hard, uh, because that allows us to more effectively position our SPAC customers for success in the market. Uh, really, the market started hardening back at the end of September of last year when the then SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, uh, in an interview called into question uh, such things as the sufficiency of sponsor due diligence and really the impact of broader sponsor incentives and what that might mean in terms of things like the sufficiency of diligence in the process or potential conflict of interest issues, as, as you heard about earlier. Um, this was followed in 2021 by some actions from the now SEC chairman, Gary Gensler. Uh, he came out early in his term and, and suggested that his enforcement agenda would include a heightened scrutiny of SPACs. And more recently, in mid-April, uh, the SEC came out and really changed their view of how SPAC warrants, an important part of the consideration in a SPAC transaction, should be valued. In particular, uh, valuing those instruments as a liability for counting purposes as opposed to an equity instrument, which really has some uh, broad-reaching implications. Uh, layer on that that we have seen a number of uh, claims that have arisen, uh, most of them still post-DSPAC because it's very hard to show shareholder losses until monies are released from trust. Uh, but more recently, we've seen an action that, that has come pre-DSPAC. And so all of these uh, all of these events put together layered on uh, really just a very significant escalation in the sheer number of SPAC transactions, you know, going from call it less than 60 in 2019 to nearly 250 in 2020, uh, and well more than that year to date in 2021, uh, with a lot of runway left to go, uh, underwriters are, are taking a much more discerning view toward, uh, toward SPACs, and that's had a, a pretty significant implication in terms of pricing and terms. Great, thank you. And so as, as two former underwriters, what do DNO underwriters view as relatively lower risk versus relatively higher risk characteristics of a SPAC? And how does Hub work with clients to positively impact DNO terms and pricing? Also, great question. So, if you, what I would tell you is that early on there was a lot of variability in how underwriters viewed SPAC risk. Um, more recently, as we've seen more come through, uh, underwriters, I would say, are, are viewing these uh, through more of a a common lens. Um, I would tell you that generally speaking, uh, from a domicile perspective, United States-based SPACs are still viewed more favorably or is relatively lower risk than Cayman or other non-US SPACs. I would say the experience of the sponsor matters quite a bit. Uh, what is the what is the prior experience of the sponsor? If they're doing multiple SPACs, uh, do the underwriters view it as a reasonable cadence or are there a high volume of simultaneous SPACs? From a conflicts of interest standpoint, how uh, do they view the, the sponsor as having relatively higher risk of, of conflicts of interest? For example, a private equity tied or venture capital tied sponsor where some of their equity investments may be viewed as, as potential merger targets for the SPAC, or, or do they view the, uh, the sponsor as having uh, relatively fewer potential conflict of interest issues? Um, from an offering size standpoint, is it a moderate size or is it very high or very low? Uh, from a compensation perspective, especially in light of the guidance around SPAC warrants, um, 
is it really market standard compensation or is it unusually pro-sponsor? So in, in the warrants, for example, we might look at uh, a 50% threshold. Now we see many SPACs going out at 25 or or or, or 33% warrant coverage. Uh, in some cases, we've even seen warrantless SPACs. Uh, you know, they might view uh, they might view a greater than 50 percent coverage as unusually pro sponsor. From a geographic perspective, uh, I would say that, and this is really focused on the geography of the target. Um, I, I would say more known and more established markets are still viewed as relatively lower risk. So the U.S., Canada, the U.K., the EU, um, relatively lower risk than Asia, Africa, Middle East, South America. But it's really important within even those higher risk geographies, we believe, to distinguish between um, geographies that that uh, even within those areas may be relatively higher risk, for example, China within Asia, or relatively lower risk, for example, Singapore within Asia. And so it's really important to dig into the details and to distinguish between geographies within those broader regions. Um, from a target perspective, they're going to pay attention to how aligned the target is with management's expertise, uh, whether or not it's socially controversial, um, how specific the target is. Underwriters generally prefer a more specific target uh, as opposed to one that is more broad. And, and granted, most SPACs leave open the opportunity to pursue targets in a variety of different industries, um, but they like the idea, underwriters, DNO underwriters in particular, like the idea of, of being able to zero in on a more likely target. Uh, and then lastly, I'll, I'll say with regard to the target, that a more established business model um, would be preferred relative to a new or emerging business model. The, the, the key example there would be uh, EVs or electric vehicles, uh, which have been the source of a lot of SPAC-related litigation. Um, if it's a more established industry, that is generally viewed as lower risk. From an advisor perspective, working with an experienced team matters. So they want to make sure that the SPAC sponsor is working with well-known bankers, attorneys, accountants. And from an S1 perspective, to make sure that it's really market standard. Um, things like, do you have a federal forum provision, which can be really impactful? Um, and we still see some examples uh, where that, that wording is not included. Um, so those are all criteria that, that DNO underwriters are using to evaluate SPACs. And if you think about, as you mentioned, Tony, I, I was a prior underwriter. If you think about underwriting as, as really uh, as much an art as it is a science, the science are things like the amount of the raise and the domicile and, and who and where the target is, is located. But what that generates is, is not an outcome, but rather a fairly wide range of potential outcomes. And so the art is helping to, within these categories, um, position our SPAC sponsors uh, in the most favorable light to drive the most effective, efficient outcome with the marketplace. Anthony, I'm going to jump in here because I have a couple of questions for David uh, based on his answer. Um, it's really interesting that you say that U.S.-based SPACs are favored over other jurisdictions, even the Cayman Islands. Um, can you speak a little bit more about the Cayman Islands in particular, primarily because a lot of hedge funds um, and investment vehicles are based out of the Cayman Islands, but that jurisdiction is still being scrutinized a bit more than the U.S. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a great question. So a lot of it has to do with the signaling with regard to where the target may be located. So we can tie that to the geographic focus of the target. So what we're seeing is that, that many U.S.-based SPACs are really focused on US-based targets, whereas Cayman domiciled SPACs may be focused in a wider geographic area. And so I would say that's, if we're comparing domiciles, it's really the focus of where the target may be located. We're seeing more international targets in, in certain higher risk jurisdictions um, in a Cayman-based SPAC versus a US-based SPAC. That's interesting. And, and 
One other point that you hit on, which I've seen in litigation as well, is underwriters looking at related party transactions and conflicts of interest, and particularly in SPACs, because you're focusing so much on the sponsor's um, network and them tapping their network for experience. How do underwriters deal with that issue? That is a related party transaction actually going to pose a conflict of interest or is it not? You know, that's I think that's a very important question because a lot of the focus on the current hard market is has been on escalations of pricing and retention levels. Not enough time, we believe, has been spent on some of the coverage issues that we've seen come out of the hard market. And, and, and we're referring to these generally as, as landmines because we don't always know what they're going to look like or where they're going to come from. Um, but we do know that the wording uh, is very problematic. And if it attaches to uh, these DNO policies, it can really... Uh, serve to materially restrict the availability of coverage. One of the examples of these landmines uh, are fairly broad form exclusions that we've seen for affiliated transactions or, or affiliated parties. Um, these can, this can have very broad lead-in wording, uh, such as based upon, arising from, directly or indirectly attributable to, and, and can really reach beyond um, what we would view as, as, as a more typical related party transaction type of risk. I would tell you that that we've been very successful in negotiating this wording away. And a lot of it comes down to um, the, really helping the underwriters understand the thought process around potential conflicts of interest. Um, but you have to take a very uh, purposeful approach toward describing those potential conflicts and how they will be mitigated uh, to make sure that this wording doesn't attach. You know, generally speaking, we get involved on the front end and we can make sure to do the transaction the right way from the beginning. But but more, you know, I would say often now we're brought in late in a transaction to correct uh, a, a deal that was that was not handled in a way that we would hope or expect. And one of the common things that we're seeing uh, is wording that that it could be potentially problematic, including uh, outright exclusions, very broad exclusions for affiliated transactions or parties. That's, that's really interesting because. In my experience, generally the DNO insurers are bought in at the end, but it really sounds like uh, these financial transactions would benefit from insurers getting involved very early, particularly because most of the litigation that I've seen so far relates to inadequate disclosures or disclosures around related party transactions. So that seems to be a great risk mitigation strategy as well to get your team involved much earlier in the transaction. Um, to make sure that the wording is actually adequate. I, I, I really think that's good advice at this moment uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, so we're, we're advising clients right now that, that we should be engaged really um, certainly can be earlier, but but we should think about starting to engage with the insurance markets at the time you've got a good draft of the S1, uh, not even waiting until it's necessarily in its final filed version, um, though with the expectation, especially in this market, that many underwriters are now, uh, with the with the delays caused by the Warren accounting issue, um, they really want to make sure that we're within 30 days of, of pricing and trading uh, before we necessarily get the final version of the uh, DNO terms. Uh, we can start much earlier. And we find that that all of the time spent on the front end in uh, really positioning our SPACs for success in the market uh, pays off quite significantly, both in terms of pricing and in terms of conditions. So yes, we, we would agree wholeheartedly that starting earlier can really benefit our SPAC sponsor clients. 
You mentioned that, you know, there were some industries where SPACs were more common, particularly uh, the technology industry. You know, we've also seen SPACs in healthcare, um, fintech, the sports world. Are there additional industries that you've seen that are not as robust, which may pose some challenges for SPAC transactions? You know, it's a good question. Like you, we've seen um, quite a quite a significant range of target industries for the various SPACs. I mean, a, a great example of one that would um, is less common, but we've done we've worked now with a number of SPAC sponsors targeting the cannabis industry, uh, often uh, with Canada domiciled SPACs as opposed to U.S. or Cayman. Uh, I, I would tell you that we're seeing targets really, really across a, a range of industries, but uh, but you're right, they, they tend to be more common in certain areas, uh, more so than others. Um, a lot of the litigation, however, seems to stem from those that are more prospective uh, or emerging, such as the electric vehicles. Anthony, I'll turn it back over to you. Great. Shivani, thanks for jumping in. Those are great follow-up questions. So, Dave, I know we touched on some of the exclusionary language that that may be in the policies and things to watch out for. But is there anything else in particular that directors should watch out for in SPAC DNO policies? Thanks, Anthony. I, I would say that, yes, there are a number of things that uh, SPAC directors should watch out for from a wording perspective. Another example of one of the landmines that we mentioned earlier is is anything that changes uh, a very important dynamic uh, that exists pre-DSPAC, whereby uh, the trust funds cannot be used to indemnify individual Ds and Os. Uh, we've seen certain carriers uh, try to attach wording in the policies that would do such things as conclusively deem the indemnification to have occurred, uh, which really it can be very problematic uh, from the standpoint of uh, making sure that the uh, the, the DNO policy, and, and in particular, the application of now a very significant retention, uh, is handled correctly for the Ds and Os. Um, that, th those are just two examples of, of what we find as are, are an ever-evolving list of potential landmines. But I would also say that uh, from, a, from a pricing perspective, uh, our SPAC customers really shouldn't feel trapped by the hard market. There are a lot of things that we can do very proactively to drive a better outcome. Uh, and so, for example, we might think about the distribution in the program between full form DNO coverage that we call side A, B, and C, or side A coverage. We might buy comparably a much higher percentage of the limit as side A as opposed to side A, B, or C. Or even in the extreme, we've seen some SPACs uh, by side A only programs and forego coverage for the organization. Uh, we might also look at things like backloading the expense. We know there's often less sensitivity in the, uh, you know, at the time of the DSPAC transaction to cost relative to upfront uh, at the time of the initial uh, pricing and, and start of trading. And so we've been able to backload a lot of the DNO cost uh, into that tail period or extended reporting period, uh, and, and in turn reduce the upfront expense. Uh, we've also been making use of what I'll call alternative capital, but these are um, ways of addressing DNO risk outside of the context of traditional uh, traditional insurance. And so there are a lot of things that we can do very proactively to help our sponsors drive really the optimal outcome for their organization. Terrific, thank you. So Shivani, what sort of due diligence should investors consider as they evaluate a SPAC investment opportunity? Anthony, that's a really great question. 
you know, investors should be cognizant of the fact that they must conduct as much due diligence on SPAC transactions that they would for any other investment. They must make sure that adequate information is being disclosed about the sponsors, the target, the industry the target may be in, the terms of the merger when eventually the merger acquisition is contemplated, and they must pay particular attention to shareholder rights. As I mentioned before, you know, SPACs are unique in that shareholders have a bit more rights than they would in traditional IPOs. They can vote against the merger, they can redeem their shares and liquidate out. Um, so they must be really keenly aware of what their rights are and, and how to adequately exercise them and appropriately exercise them so they can take advantage of the fact that they are investing in a SPAC rather than a traditional IPO. Um, but all in all, you know, what we've seen from litigation trends and what we've heard from David today is that there are risk mitigation strategies that both, you know, SPACs, target companies and investors can um, utilize um, in evaluating the transaction and consummating the transaction or in any aspect of the SPAC transaction. So Anthony and David, this has been a very illuminating discussion. You know, we've talked about some of the key takeaways today from the perspective of SPAC transactions for sponsors and for targets and investors to be aware of and how they can mitigate some of the risk that comes along with SPAC transactions. Um, and how to avoid litigation. And there seems to be a lot of mechanisms here, particularly from the perspective of providing adequate disclosures, ensuring you're aware of your rights as an investor, and also for DNOs to consider insurance, um, and particularly SPAC-related DNO insurance. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today, and thank you to our audience as well. Um, and hopefully we will come back again to learn a little bit more about SPAC-related litigation when that does explode. Thank you very much for joining us for Herrick's podcast, Herrick Does That. To learn more about our firm and to listen to additional recordings, please visit us at www.herrick.com.